Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome to my co-host, Carolyn Middleton, PNC member for Wales, back for a second time on the podcast. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you, Rachel. It's really lovely to be back. This week, we're going to explore further the links between the nursing workforce crisis, patient safety and nursing pay. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Alison Leary, Professor of Healthcare and Workforce Modelling at London South Bank University, a Fellow of the Royal College of Nursing and my co-host for many of our past episodes, but returning to the podcast this week as a guest. Welcome back, Alison. Thanks very much, Rachel. So, Alison, you're a Professor of Workforce Modelling. Can you tell us what a workforce modeller does? Generally, modelling is about building a representation of the real world so that you can test it, and usually you use data to do that. And particularly, we use mathematical modelling. And we started. I started to do workforce modelling a number of years ago when there, there appeared to be sort of fairly significant issues, particularly in the healthcare workforce. Mm. But we, we work across many different sectors. And it's interesting to see the difference in the different sectors, particularly other safety-critical industries. Nursing and the issues that we've got in the workforce generally mm. started to emerge about 10 years ago. And so this is not new. It, yeah. It's not really about the pandemic. And it, it's, I mean, although things like the pandemic and Brexit have heavily influenced the, issue, the, you know, the issues that we have today, this was a long time coming. And so how would you describe the state of the nursing workforce today? I think as a workforce, it's incredibly fragile. We know that people are having to use other workers to do the work of nursing. And there are several issues with that. So that one is that people are not getting nursing care. They're getting a different sort of care, but also heavily relying on on groups like nursing support workers, where nursing support workers are no longer support workers, but actually primary caregivers is very exploitative. And exploitative in terms of because they're, they're taking on roles that they're not being rewarded for or roles that they're not able to do. Where do you see the real issues there? In the research, we see we see a number of different areas. So there's an area around patient safety. We see a deficit in, in having a registered nurse workforce. We, we know that adding more support workers generally doesn't improve outcomes, but adding registered nurses does. It's exploitative because we see more and more now nursing support workers and nursing associates being substituted for registered nurses, but not on the same rate of pay. Mm. And also in some work we've done recently in the community, we find that support workers feel they're being over-delegated to, and they're having to take on work that they're not comfortable with and that they don't feel they've got the education or training to do. Currently, we're just bolstering up a failing system. And that's a failing system that you're you know, as you say, goes back, you know, way beyond the the pandemic and you said a good 10 years or more. How have we got into that position, the position where we're in a a failing system in in relation to that nursing workforce? There have been a number of factors. I mean, there's there's obviously a political issue that the current government and the government that preceded it, the coalition government, adopted a policy on austerity and public spending. Mm. And certainly we were seeing more pressure on organisations to cut the wage bill. And generally when people are asked to cut the wage bill, what they'll do is is a a frontline skill dilution. So they will have more hands 
for less money. And the only way you can do that is having people that are paid less. And so you see a trend in that. That then we've we've also seen, obviously, we've got an ageing workforce. Ageing is something you can reasonably easily predict. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Brexit and, and the pandemic were not so easy to predict, <laughs> but ageing, and we are an ageing workforce. Nurses yeah. an ageing workforce. The patterns in the nursing workforce being a predominantly female profession, so we know we get mid-career leavers, it is also another common pattern. Are there any particular pressure points, would you say, whether that be in hospital, in community settings or somewhere else? I think everywhere's under extreme stress now. We lost 50% of district nurses in the eight years before the pandemic. So the community's under a huge amount of pressure. I think the really big pinch points are mental health and learning disability. I think the learning disability nursing population, I'd have to check the, the stats, but it was something like we lost about almost half of the learning disability nurses. Lots of universities close their learning disability courses. For me, it's one of the really big areas that doesn't get a lot of light, but there's huge patient safety risks involved in learning disability. We have so many inquiries from sort of Winterbourne View, you know, there, there have been a huge amount of them. And I've been watching George Julian, who looks at this, she's been sharing CQC reports of these inadequate services, really unsafe services that are still open, that have a casualised workforce, you know, almost all agency staff, almost all people that are not qualified learning disability nurses running them, critiques from CQC and coroners, and yet very little is done. I guess I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question now, Alison, if I might. In your opinion... How can the workforce crisis be solved? I think it would actually be very hard to solve it now. Ten years ago, five years ago, I think we would have been in a better position. Um, But we have a sort of perfect storm now of pay restraint, an exhausted workforce that can't put its head above the parapet to even think about anything, an ageing workforce and really poor working conditions. To come back from that, I think, would be very, very difficult. Pay is one of the issues, certainly. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I know of many organisations now that are offering support, pastoral support, food banks, um, help with travel. So there is there is a fairly urgent issue around pay, and it is one of the levers, but also working conditions. So we know that when one of the things that's attracted nurses back, and actually nurses out of retirement, is a guaranteed ratio. And that was in one of the one of the Australian states. They they guaranteed a one to four ratio, and people actually came back to work. Good employment practices go a long way. So you know, making sure there's adequate staffing. Yeah, I think we're a long way from safe staffing or therapeutic levels of staffing, but adequate staffing. Making sure that people have somewhere to eat and drink, that kind of thing. But basic workforce hygiene factors you can't go wrong with as an employer, but so many of them fail to do that. And it's interesting that you mentioned the ratio of staffing. And I wonder whether I represent Wales on the PNC, whether in fact the the Staffing Act Wales has had an impact on the recruitment and retention of nurses. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. It was certainly good to have that legislation. I think we've gone past the point of, you know, workforce modellers like me don't really like ratios because they end up being a race to the bottom. 
And in other safety critical industries, the ratio is, is, is what we call a fail safe. It's a, it's a place where you shouldn't go. The ratio is somewhere where you shouldn't go. It's, it's the minimum, the absolute minimum. And you'd try and have a workforce model that took you above the minimum, minimum ratio. But now I get messages from nurses pretty much every day telling me they're the only registered nurse on for a ward of 32 patients with maybe a nursing associate and some support workers. Or very commonly, they have 15 patients in an acute medical or surgical setting. All the evidence tells us that that's unsafe. So I think we have gone past the point of debating ratios and we need some kind of some kind of hard deck now really to help people just stay in work because going to work in those conditions will just drive more and more people away you've mentioned several times Alison um, about patient safety as an area that's an area of real concern to you and where you're an acknowledged expert in that field so just can we just think a bit more from the work that you've done in both hospital and community settings. I think one of the main issues that we should be concerned about as a profession is the work that's left undone. Mm. So the work that doesn't get done. And I was quite surprised, well, shocked, having recently modelled the work of district nurses. And it was a repeat of the work that we'd done in 2015. Mm. And district nurses are constantly have to deprioritise and reprioritise their work. Um, Their work changes during the day. It's not static as they juggle a caseload. Mm. And in 2015, what we've seen is that there are a couple of things that district nurses will always prioritise above everything else. And that's things like blocked catheters and end-of-life care. And in 2015, less than 2% of the district nurses that we worked with, which is not an inconsiderable number, it's about 1,500, left end-of-life care undone. So they would own, they would deprioritise everything else to go and do end-of-life care. When we did that last year for the modelling, we found that 37% were having to leave end-of-life care undone, which is a huge leap. Yeah. And also um, from the qualitative data, we know that causes them a huge amount of distress. That is not a good recipe for retention, and it's not a good recipe for patient safety either. The two are so interlinked, aren't they? The experience of nurses caring for patients and the experience of patients being cared for when there aren't enough nurses to to provide the care and that work has to be left undone. Yeah, I mean, people often sort of glibly use the term happy staff, happy patients, but that's actually for a reason. You know, there, there is a substantial amount of evidence that shows you that any socially critical workforce that's that feels comfortable in its work, that feels psychologically safe, is going to do its job better. I don't know why this is such a difficult concept for policymakers and employers to understand, or it might be that just they just don't know how to um, get around the resourcing issue. Mm. But I think it's also a cultural issue. You know, nursing isn't still isn't seen as a safety-critical profession, which I find incredible, because when you, t- when you speak to lay people, they certainly understand it's a safety-critical profession. Mm. You said that um, patients certainly understand nursing as a safety-critical profession. What what do you hear from some of the patient groups you work with about their experience of nurse staffing levels? It shows up in things like the NHS staff survey, but also lots Mm. of the patient group surveys, that they they observe nurses being too busy. Mm. 
they, they would think I was too busy. Nursing's still the most trusted profession. And mm. I think people that encounter nursing understand that when things are not done, it's because nurses are too busy. From our work with specialist nurses particularly, but this would apply to all of nursing, patients understand more than perhaps policymakers and employers mm. the importance of the organisational nature of nursing. So nursing is um, it's obviously a, a, a profession of doing stuff, you know, doing nursing interventions. Mm. But nurses are also the principal organisers of care in the healthcare system. And that nursing seems to have given up a lot of that. So, you know, some nurses still try to do it. But being a, a manager of care as well as being a deliverer of care mm. is really important. And that's one of the things that I think patients understand more than people that make decisions about nursing. Alison, I wonder if I could pick up on some of the more formal reports that there have been going back as far as mid-staffs to more recently this year, the Ockenden report um, about safer staffing and patient safety. But what have we really learnt? I think we've learnt a lot. I think the relationship between patient safety and and staffing um, or workforce is, is fairly well established. And in fact, you can go back further. I think the first significant report was Ely in 1967, which also said the same thing about people with learning disabilities, actually. And we've had so many inquiries since. It's kind of hard to keep arguing against it. And it's not that we don't learn. It's just that the learning isn't put into action Mm. or the learning ends up being a tension between doing the best thing, best practice, and perhaps policy ambitions. The reason we had the Francis report really was, you know, the the move to foundation trusts and, you know, the financial pressures that organisations were under. And for for a couple of years, you know, things improved and the focus went to staffing. But we're back mm. we're back where Francis where yeah. Francis was. Yeah. <laughs> and I see I see organisations now with worse staffing than mid staffs. Do we learn? There's virtually no organisational memory. That's why I think organisations like the RCN are so important because they can provide that consistency. Thinking about, so we've heard a little bit from you about um, evidence from inquiries and um, the, the, the perhaps lack of outcome and learning in practice from that. What does the research tell us about the link between nurse staffing levels and patient outcomes? There's a fairly substantial body of evidence that associates various factors with nurse staffing, nurse education, aspects of nursing and patient safety. The thing that people worry about a lot is that there's no sort of direct causal link that they can find. But to be honest, it's probably so multifactorial, it would be very difficult to find a direct causal link. In that sense, we we need to adopt a precautionary principle. So there are around at least a thousand papers that I know of that show some kind of association between staffing and aspect of staffing and patient safety. So for me, the precautionary principle should apply. Until you can prove otherwise, you should err on the side of caution. For some reason, it seems very difficult for that to happen. The bar for nursing seems incredibly high in terms of evidence Of all the workforces that I work with, nursing is probably the most investigated, possibly over-investigated. There seems to be an almost disbelief until you have this sort of ironclad proof that anything can be done. 
which isn't true. (laughs) (laughs) I struggle with that quite a lot. I think erring on the side of caution in in safety critical work is is something that's done very commonly and it's something that nursing should do and should very much push for. Alison, you talked earlier about sort of, you know, the evidence from inquiries from other things not cutting through at that at that policy level. And and I guess some of that is around the short term view that particularly governments take. And is that something that we as a, a Royal College can be sort of really making that case for that that impact and those those links so that the importance of, of nursing staff and, and advocating very clearly for um, the difference that that can make in practice. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that a Royal College should be doing um, because only a Royal College really can do it. I think it's very difficult for other organisations like trade unions to do that. And of course, the RCN is also a Royal College and not, not only a trade union. Other Royal Colleges do this. And yeah, I do think the RCN is in a very good position to be able to do that. I want to um, turn now to the more to the question of nursing pays more specifically. And the current cost of living crisis comes at the end of a a decade of austerity where the value of nursing pay um, has been steadily eroded. And so that nurses have, in fact, received a, a a pay cut in in real terms. What are you hearing about how that's affecting nurses and, and nursing teams? Pay is one of the levers of retention. I think nursing has tolerated for a very long time very poor pay, comparative to the work that it undertakes and the manage and the risk that it manages. Mm. Certainly, it's not comparable to other safety critical work, and so nursing's toleration of poor pay is probably not helped. But also makes it incredibly good value for money. And that argument isn't really demonstrated very much. I think I think it's one of the things that, that people need to talk about perhaps a little bit more. Pay is an important lever. And one of the things that I've really been looking at recently is the fact that not only has pay not kept up with the cost of living for nursing, but also we've seen a downdrift in banding. So agenda mm. change banding, but also in areas... And it's fairly anecdotal. We don't have any data on this, but in areas like general practice nursing, who are not on agenda for change generally, but we've seen sort of hourly rates go down. So I was making this comparison the other day when I when I was looking at ward sisters jobs or, or clinical nurse specialist jobs or district nursing jobs eight or nine years ago, they would have generally been a band seven. Now, when I scraped NHS jobs a few months ago, I was looking at ward sister jobs or ward manager jobs. of them were at band six. I think offering ward sisters roles or ward managers roles at band six is an incredible devaluation of the work. You know, it's, it's an incredibly complex job. It carries a huge amount of responsibility. It it carries budgetary responsibility. It carries management responsibility. And of course it carries 24 seven clinical responsibility. Uh, And the ward leadership roles, as we saw in things like Francis are absolutely, Mm essential for patient safety generally nursing pay is probably too low compared to not only other safety critical industries but other healthcare professionals so really there's a bigger issue here about the devaluing of nursing work generally which is then reflected in nursing salaries 
Now, listen, it's interesting to hear a little earlier that you were talking about whether or not nursing is seen as a safety critical role. And I guess it's um, dependent on, on who you ask, maybe what answer you might get. But putting that to one side, what other professions outside of nursing would you consider are safety critical? And how would they fare in terms of pay compared to nursing? I often compare nursing because nursing is what we call a profession of vigilance. So it's not only what nurses do, it's what nurses stop happening, bad mm-hmm. things. So things like um, spotting deterioration and acting on it, mm-hmm. which is very difficult to measure. So another profession of vigilance is air traffic control. And I often compare nursing to air traffic control because a lot of it is about being vigilant and having a very high cognitive workload as well as doing things so pay (laughs) so yeah I mean a ward sister would would earn probably half of what an air traffic control operative earns that's a comparison I wasn't expecting I was I was expecting something within the healthcare remit but uh Interesting that that you um, you would pick something like air traffic control that we we all have some although we don't have an in depth um, knowledge about what they do we have some um, idea of the the safety critical element of every minute of every day that they're on shift. Well, one of the good reasons they're you know that they're good to compare to is people don't question their value and yeah. you might not understand what they do but you know you need them to get somewhere yeah. safely. <laughs> So you don't need an intimate knowledge of what they do to value what they do. Yeah. Whereas in nursing, we're constantly asked to prove the worth of nursing. One other thing that you you touched on briefly earlier, Alison, was that nursing is still predominantly a female profession. Do you believe that gender is a factor in nursing pay? Gender is a massive factor in nursing pay. (laughs) Um, yes it's an 89% female profession in in England Um, and actually it's it's not much different in the UK actually women's work generally is not valued and we see that across the board so we see that in 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 all aspects of the care sector so even, even when men do it it's still seen as women's work and not valued particularly well. How do we challenge that because I think there are a couple of things that you've said in the last few minutes that are really important. One of that concept of nursing as a profession of vigilance, because that's that's so difficult to evidence, isn't it? And it's so difficult to, and unless you are in it, it's very difficult to understand that real importance of, of vigilance. So we have nursing as a profession of vigilance, harder to see, you know, it's not like the glamour of brain surgery, and then gender and women's work being undervalued so how do we really take those things forward in terms of recognizing the value of what nursing does what nursing brings what nursing is nurses really find it difficult to speak out and I've I've sort of attuned myself to hearing the way nurses speak about their work and they absolutely devalue it but nursing is far more than a supportive role I mean yes absolutely people support patients but Nursing is pivotal. It, it, it needs more centrality in terms of where it sits in healthcare. It, but it, it, nurses put more emphasis on being a sort of bit part in the team rather than being central to the success of patient outcomes. 
But I think that sort of taking that that leadership role and and recognizing that nursing leads so many aspects of healthcare is is critical in how we then make the case for a salary that is commensurate with the the work that nursing does. That, I guess, takes us to the current situation where nurses are, within the Royal College of Nursing, contemplating industrial action. Industrial action that is a response to the current pay awards, or in Northern Ireland, the absence of a pay award. But it's not only about pay, is it? I I think it's also about some of the things that we've talked about today, staffing levels, the, the value of nursing work, perhaps almost giving nursing a voice yeah I mean pay is a lever for retention and retention is essential for patient safety so I mean to me it's they're two sides of the same coin obviously it's preferable not to have industrial action but having looked at the situation fairly extensively over the last 10 Mm. years and knowing that from what we've seen that industrial action is often the only way Mm. to improve pay and not only pay but also working conditions and what pay and working conditions and working conditions in particular are absolutely essential for patient safety. We've heard you do a, a lot of work with different organisations, including those, some of those patient groups. And in Northern Ireland, we saw that there was a real swell of public support for nurses who were on strike back in 2019. A recent poll showed that 60% of the public support industrial action now. What's your insight into how patient groups, the public might feel this time around? Certainly the groups that we would work with are are very supportive of nursing. And I think they understand that nursing really essentially has its back to the wall now. The public generally need to understand why we need to protect nursing. And that's because, you know, at some point in our lives, we probably all will need a registered nurse or a nursing support worker. Um, And if they're not there, then the consequences of that are catastrophic, which is what we've seen in most of those inquiries. And so I think I think the understanding of the public, if it were just about pay, there might be perhaps less sympathy. But I think I think probably a lot of the public understand this is also about patient safety Mm. and it's something that we really need to impress on people that this is not just about pay. Mm-hmm. This is about their safety and the safety of their families. And what are you hearing from nurses who are contemplating strike action? It's interesting. I think I've seen more interest in industrial action than I've ever seen in the past. People are exhausted and they, I think they probably can't see any alternative. I'm always really interested in people that are very anti-industrial action. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to explore with them why they object to it so much and it's usually for ideological or political reasons so ideological reasons are around um you know patients not receiving care but we know that's the status quo already yeah you know patients are not receiving care we know that so do you want the status quo to continue or do you want a chance to change it that would be my question to them some people are politically opposed to industrial action i think it's quite interesting that there's an assumption that that nurses are probably um, of one political persuasion because they're public sector workers, but actually I'm not entirely sure that's true. And I've been 
discussing recently with nurses that have and some focus groups actually with nurses that are traditionally conservative voters and what their views are. I was quite surprised that most of them supported industrial action. So but that, that's my own bias. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where the question comes up, would they would they vote conservative again? And and around half of them would not at, right. at the current government. So that kind of thing isn't representative, obviously. But I think what we have, what it tells me is that we have a very, very mixed picture mm. on views around industrial action. And we also have that issue around nurses feeling uncomfortable and worrying that it will make them unpopular at work. Either way, whether they take industrial action or they don't. And, and that seems to be quite a big concern from, from a number of people that I speak to. So on our last episode of the podcast, we heard the experience of a, a nurse from Northern Ireland um, who took part in strike action last time. And I think actually the way that that brought together the nursing profession, once that decision was was taken, mm. was something that really that really struck me. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's obviously the, the sort of the anticipation of doing something mm. and then the action of doing something, isn't there? And, and people's views may change. It's just very interesting to to kind of understand the the differences in opinions mm-hmm. and how organisations, professional organisations can support people in that decision making. Yeah, what support do you think we need to give to people in that decision making? I mean, you know, I think we're, I hope that some of the discussions that we're having, conversations that we're having through the podcast can can help some of that. Are there other things that you think we should be using to help people understand perhaps the um, the context of the industrial action, that this is not just about pay, it's about pay as a lever to, towards a safer staffing? I think that's an essential key message that, you know, this is not just about pay, even though pay is important, but it is also about patient safety. Safe staffing saves lives. We know that. Mm. And so I think that that's a key issue. Obviously, being respectful of people's views, not everybody's going to have the same view on this. I think there's, in some quarters, a lot of enthusiasm for industrial action because people are so frustrated and upset mm. at the situation. But that has to translate, I think, into positive energy around the pros and cons of industrial action rather than just alienating people that perhaps have a different view. And I think you've talked about industrial action as being a, a, a lever for change and that need for mm. nursing to have a voice. Is industrial action a way for nursing to find that voice? To me, absolutely. We've seen that in examples from around the world. And nursing, I think, has been, this is a personal view rather than a research view, but Mm. I think nursing as a female profession has been exploited because it has been silent. Mm. Nursing desperately needs to find its voice because the voice of nurses is the voice of the vulnerable, is the voice of patients, it is the voice of social justice. Without that voice, I, I really would fear what would happen to society in the future, particularly the people in society that can't speak for themselves. Thank you, Alison. I think that's a brilliant place to finish our, our conversation, um, reaching the end of the podcast. But we'll be back again soon as we continue to explore the issues around nursing pay, the links with safe staffing and patient safety, and the potential impact of nurses taking industrial action. But for this week, thanks to our special guest, Alison Leary. Thank you. And to my co-host, Carolyn Middleton. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Alison. 
Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.